Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Good to see all your faces and some new faces, too. We really had a beautiful wedding as a community yesterday. I know not everyone was there, but Justin Perks and Bethany Ellis got married last night. It was a very, very special day to see another couple in our community get married and commit their lives to one another. They really had a lot of fun. I think it was a beautiful celebration. really love to encourage you to pray for them as they're out on honeymoon as they start their lives together. But my name is Grant, if we haven't met before, and today we're carrying on our Tough Questions series. In fact, we're ending it today. We've spent about six months, about once every month, looking at one of the tough questions that you have said, your friends, family, neighbors, co-workers ask you about Christianity. And these are sometimes the really tough things that we think, sheesh, I really should know the answer to this question, but I just don't. So we've been going through that over a number of months with the two intentions, one of equipping us to answer these questions. Sometimes just in that moment, you don't know what to say. You don't know how to respond. Like, I believe this, but I don't know how to respond in a gracious, thoughtful way. And we've been trying to do that to equip you that even if you don't remember everything that's said about a certain topic, at least we know, you know what, there is an answer out there. I can go and look that up. I can get some of the notes. I can get hold of that recording and I can look through it again. There's a good answer out there. And then the second hope that we've had with the series is for those friends of yours that are exploring the faith and maybe have a few obstacles in the way of starting to follow Jesus and live for Him, that actually these would be opportunities for them to have their questions answered and to begin a journey of living for Jesus. If you've missed some of these or you want to go over them, we do have a website, redpointchurch.com forward slash Durban, where you can get hold of all the sermons and things. We also do have a podcast if you use iTunes. It might just be helpful to go through these things again. I hope that they're very, very helpful resources for us as a church. And today I'm finishing the series with one of the subjects which seem to get a lot of interest. So my topic today is how can a loving, forgiving God send people to hell? And as with a lot of these tough questions sermons, I'm not going to be able to cover absolutely every aspect of this topic. I'm not going to be able to look at all the theology, all the aspects, all of the detail of these things. But I'm hoping that today can be a primer. And I'm hoping that I can look at some of the scriptures and what they teach and that I can answer our big question for the day. If you are here for the first time, this is quite a serious topic. I want to promise you this isn't my pet subject or something that we preach on all of the time, but it is something that we want to look at. We want to be a church that preaches through all of God's word, the whole counsel of God, all of the themes that the scriptures talk about. So today we really, really want to look at the script, uh, scripture and this truth in a helpful and good way. Hell isn't really a topic that you talk about often. It's probably not something that you've spoken about at a dinner party recently or over coffee with a friend. It's not something we talk about often in church, and it's not something we talk about often outside of church. I'd imagine probably some of the times you've last thought about hell would have been watching a movie or watching a cartoon or watching some kind of comedy thing, which gives us a very different perspective of what hell is all about. So I don't know what uh, hops out to you, but maybe it's red demons with pointy tails and horns and pitchforks, something like this little guy from the comics back in the day. Or maybe it's this picture of fire and flames where bad people like Adolf Hitler and Australian rugby players go when they die. My first rugby joke? But I, I read this today, and I thought it was, uh, I don't know, just a very, very funny thing. You know, it's a cartoon image of hell. But this is sometimes what we think about. It's a sanitized, cute version of hell, which is really not what the Bible speaks about. Um, C.S. Lewis said incredibly, he's one of the great Christian theologians, and he said this about hell. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power but it has the full support of scriptures and especially of our Lord's own words. 
And I wonder if we went around this room today and we did a bit of a survey on what every person in this room thought about hell, some of the responses we would get back would be. I reckon some of you have studied the scriptures before and you know something about what Jesus and the Bible teaches about hell. And maybe you've thought this through properly. You've read some books, you've done a good study and you could answer that well. Or maybe your view of hell is more shaped through literature and through film and through other religions and philosophies. And you've got a bit of an eclectic hodgepodge of ideas joined together of what your view of hell is. Or maybe for you, you don't believe in an afterlife. You don't believe in hell or heaven. For you, when we die, that's it. Lights out. That's the end of the story. We've just got this life and nothing else. I don't know what your view might be here today. But what we're going to do is we're not going to look at what culture says. We're not going to look at what other religions or other philosophies say. We're not going to look at what the world around us says about this topic. We want to come to the Scriptures, to the Bible, to our ultimate authority on life and what we believe and what we do and our doctrine. And we want to look at what the Scriptures say. And then we want to say whether this is a tough thing to believe or not, this is what I'm going to choose to believe because it's what God has said. So in a sense, we're coming to God and saying, Lord, not what I believe, not what I've heard in the past, but what you say about this topic, that is what I want to believe. So let's start and get to this question. But we're going to start with a few building blocks to get to our answer today. And the first one would be this. Firstly, what is hell? All of the guys that I've read and listened to about this topic say that Jesus preached about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, more than any of the other prophets, more than any of the other preachers and teachers in the scriptures. He spoke about it the most. So we do see that it's a very important subject and topic, but that doesn't help us to know what Jesus actually said about these things. So I've got a few scriptures that are going to pop up on the screen behind me. In Matthew 25, it says this in verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, it says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And in Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus says, thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very, very serious images. And what these scriptures teach us about the reality of hell is one day there will be a judgment, one day there will be a moment where all people stand before God and give an account for the lives that we've lived, for the things that we've done, for the beliefs we've had, for the decisions we've made, for the words that we've spoken. And in that moment, there will be a division, God dividing some people to eternal life and other people to eternal punishment and eternal death. Here in these scriptures, we learn, and you might not know this, that actually the Bible says that hell was a place that God prepared for Satan and his followers, the demons. Hell isn't a place that is ruled over by Satan. I think that's maybe one of the things that we see in all the pop culture things that we read. That's Satan's domain. We've got heaven where God lives. We've got earth where we kind of live. And then we've got hell where the devil lives. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches us that hell is a place prepared for Satan and prepared for his demons as a place of punishment for them. Very, very interesting thing. Beyond that, it shows us that it is a lonely place where we will be separated from God and his presence for all of time. These scriptures show us that it is a place of fire and suffering, all radical images. But what I found most interesting as I studied this is that the Greek word that Jesus uses when he talks about hell is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna back in that day was actually a place that people knew. It was a place just outside of the city of Jerusalem that they would have known about, that they would have talked about. So I was trying to think about what we could compare this to. I guess it would be like now Christmas time, now summertime, it's all hot. We say, sheesh, I went to the beach 
at the end of December, and there were just people everywhere. It was hell being at the beach. Or maybe the 24th of December, you decide, I'm going shopping, I'm going to Gateway, I haven't bought any presents, I need to get it all done. And we go, and there's people everywhere, it's chaos, people are fighting in the aisles over different presents and things they want to buy. It's a nightmare. And you get home, and your wife, your husband, your friend says to you, how was it? You go, it was hell at Gateway today. I think that's a very soft illustration, but maybe that's a picture. Jesus is speaking about hell being like Gehenna, this place just outside of Jerusalem that was a garbage dump. It was a place that stank. It was a place that was always on fire. It was a place where people took their garbage bags and dumped them so that they would be burnt up. And it's a place where people took dead bodies. They took the corpses of those that they could not bury themselves and they threw them into these fires where they would burn. That is the picture of Gehenna that Jesus is talking about. And in Mark 9 verse 48, when Jesus speaks about this place, he says that it is where worm does not die and fire is not quenched. He's talking about a real place where maggots sit in the bodies of these corpses and decompose and dissolve and eat through the flesh of people who are there burning and being eaten until they are no more. Fire, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, maggots, all vivid imagery, all terrible imagery of what this place is like. But imagery nonetheless, metaphors of a far worse truth of what hell is really like. Here in hell, there is suffering and we are separated from the presence of God. Darkness is a a horrible metaphor for the isolation and loneliness that we would find there apart from God. And fire is an image of the disintegration that we would face away from the presence of God. There in hell, separated from God's presence, all things fall apart. Quite a sobering thought. And we often talk here about brokenness and sin in our world. We talk about what we see in our lives and in the people's lives around us, what we see in the news and in the media of the brokenness and sin in the world around us. But God still has incredible common grace for this world. God is still involved in our world. He's still active in our world. One of the things that Jesus says is, does not God reign on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous? God is involved in the lives of every person that is in our planet today. But one day in hell, God will pull himself out. He will be disengaged. He will not be present in that place. And there will be no more common grace. In Colossians 1, one of the most powerful images, I think, of who God is and what he does, it says, in him all things hold together. But one day in hell, when God moves away, all things will fall apart outside of his presence and his involvement in his lives. All things will fall apart and be broken in a terrible and horrible way. Mark Twain, the writer of Huckleberry Finn, said, go to heaven for the climate, hell for the company. And maybe you've got some friends who've said something like that to you. I've chatted to a number of my friends who've said, I don't want to go to heaven. That's where boring people go when they die. Hell's going to be a party. That's where all the rock stars are. That's where a lot of my heroes are. That's the kind of place that I would like to go to enjoy life and have some interesting conversations about the future. And I think we look at some of these images and we think about fire and darkness. You know, I don't need a nightlight at night. I'm not scared of darkness. Fire isn't really that intimidating because you think you'll get used to it over time. I think we're not that freaked out about some of these images. They've lost their meaning because of some of the cartoons and images I've talked about already. But I want you to think about this in another way. In hell, where God has completely withdrawn himself, there will be sin that will be increasing forever and ever and ever. So think about sin in your own life or some of the sins that you've experienced. Maybe bitterness in someone else's heart 
or selfishness or cruelty, pride, maliciousness, evil, whatever it might be, something that you felt in yourself that you've hated or a way that someone else has treated you that has hurt you in a horrible way. In hell, those things in the human heart will grow and grow and increase and increase forever and ever and ever, getting worse and worse and worse. Hell is not going to be a fun place. Hell is not going to be a good place. It is going to be a place of darkness and a place of increasing sin and evil for all of time. It will be lonely, dark, and a place of suffering. I think as I speak about all of these things, and we think about the reality of these images of what Jesus talks about, we've got to say to ourselves, well then why is there a hell? If God is a loving and forgiving God, how could he make such a horrible place? How could he make such a place of barbaric evil and just rampant sin? Surely, surely that is not good. Surely that is not kind and forgiving. How can God do that? But at the same time as we wrestle with and we hold that question in our minds, we ask ourselves the question that we answered in the first part of the series. Why is there pain and suffering and sin and evil in the world around us? Why when we watch TV, why in the lives of our friends, why in our lives is there brokenness and sin? Why are those things allowed to continue? And we're a people who want justice. We want things to be right. We don't want the brokenness and evil and wickedness that we see in the world around us. We want it to be dealt with. And I'm sure you've felt that before. I mean, there's small ways and there's big ways that we feel that. I'm sure most of us driving to work tomorrow will have experiences with taxis or cars who cut us off or just stop in the middle of the road and inconvenience us, but nearly cause us to crash. And when that happens, we're going to cry out for justice. We're going to be angry. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to be irritated. We will want justice in that situation. Or maybe a little bit more intense, maybe in work or in your family, there have been moments where someone has hurt you or treated you cruelly, or been unkind, or lied about you, or in some way treated you in a way that is wrong. In that moment, we want justice. We want justice. We don't want that to go unpunished. Or maybe as we watch some of the atrocities going on in the world at the moment, we watch the horrible bombings and murders in Paris. We see what is happening in Syria and with the refugees. I looked at a photo recently of a girl in Nigeria, I think 13 years old, blowing herself up. And we think we want justice for these things. It cannot be. We want justice. We want things to be right. Maybe you remember when Osama bin Laden was killed just a little bit ago. There was a cover on the front page of the New York Daily News that said this, rot in hell. And I read that and I'm a little bit offended by that. I think, sheesh, that is a crazy, what editor passed that? But I think, in a sense, it captures the heart of the world towards this man who did so much evil and who took so much life. We think you deserve justice. Something must be done for what you have done. But it still offends me. And as I was chatting with Shane and Brenz before the service, we thought, well, the reality is Osama bin Laden is a sinner, and he did evil things in this world. But we are also sinners, and we have also done evil things. And why do we think that we are better than this man? Why do we think that we don't deserve justice while he does? We need justice in this world. And if we are to believe that God is a loving and kind and good God, he also needs to be a holy and righteous judge who deals with what is wrong and what is wicked in the world. We want justice, and we want God to punish sin, wickedness, and evil. My second point this morning is this, who goes to hell and why? 
This is maybe one of the most personal aspects of this topic today. It's a huge question because we can think about this as a theory out there. We can think about this as a set of ideas and truths, but when we personalize this and when we start to think about people in our lives, are they in or out? It is a huge reality, and it's got to shock us and jolt us a little bit into the realities of what Jesus is teaching and whether we believe them or not. But before I answer that question, I want to say emphatically, that God does not want anyone to go to hell. God does not want anyone to go to hell. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, God is patient with you. He does not want anyone to perish. Rather, He wants everyone to turn their lives over to Him. Exodus, Ezekiel 18 verse 23 says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? The important thing to see in all of this is that we're not the only ones who are unsettled and rattled and messed around a little bit by hell. God is unsettled by the reality of hell. God does not want anyone to go to hell. God, I think, is shocked at the reality of hell. He does not want anyone to experience life or eternity apart from Him. And He believes that and wants that so much that He was willing to get His hands dirty. He was willing to put on human flesh and come and live on our earth and to die on a cross, that sin could be dealt with, that the sin that we deserve punishment for could be taken out on Him, and that we could be reconciled to God, that we could be forgiven, that we could be clean. In fact, God was so committed to people not going to hell that He was willing to come to earth and be punished in our place for the sin that condemns us, so that we could be set free, so that we could be forgiven, and so that one day we don't have to worry about any of these things familiar verse to many of us would be John 3 verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. It's a Greek word, apolumi, to be destroyed. God does not want anyone to go to hell, but to have eternal life. And God has done and continues to do everything he can to stop people from going to this place. In fact, in the journey of our lives, he's put the cross in the way, almost as this huge roadblock to make us think about the realities of the decisions that we are making and the course of our lives, where we are going. And as we come to that cross, it's almost this moment of U-turn. Will you turn around? Will you repent? Will you turn to live out God's ways? Or will you carry on to the destination that you are heading towards? And if we don't U-turn, if we don't repent and we don't believe, if we don't put our faith in Jesus, then yes, the reality is that our ultimate destination would be hell. C.S. Lewis says it so profoundly. There are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. And Jesus' teaching on all of this stuff shows us that there are eternal consequences for the earthly decisions that we make in this life. It's a big reality to face up to. Hell is the natural trajectory, the natural direction for some people who are living lives apart from God, people who've chosen not to live for Him, people who've chosen not to follow Him. And heaven, on the other hand, or eternal life with God is the natural trajectory or destination for those who've chosen to make Him the center of their lives, the object of their worship, to follow Him and to live for Him. So as I answer the question, who goes to hell? The answer is unrighteous people, sinners, those who've rejected God and His ways. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is that one day there will be a judgment 
One day, every single person that has ever lived will stand before God and give an account for our lives. God will ask us questions. I think God will bring up moments in our lives. I don't really know how He's going to do it, but there will be a moment of accountability, and there will be a moment of reality where we are faced with the decisions we've made, the sins we've committed, and what we've done with the reality of who God is. And that's true for Christians too. We are sinners, and we will one day give an account before God for the lives that we've lived. But there is a difference for us. And there is a hope for us. And there's a reason that we can have confidence about that day. It's because if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Our hope is that we are in Christ. It's not our hope because of what we've done, that we've lived a good life. Our hope is that we are in Him. And one day as we stand before God, as this judgment moment unfolds, whatever happens in that time, God will look at us and He will see Jesus' perfect life, not ours. He won't see our faults. He won't see our flaws. All of that will be washed clean by what Jesus has done on the cross. We will be forgiven. We will be pure. We will be holy. And God will welcome us into His kingdom because of the works of Jesus, because of the life of Jesus, because of the good works of Jesus and the death of Jesus, not because of what we've done, not because of our faults and flaws, not because of our mistakes, but because of Jesus' perfect life. And I want to say this, if you're one of the people on the outside of Christianity looking in, and you think, you Christians think that you are perfect, you Christians think you've got it all right and all together, that is not true. As a pastor, I'm saying to you today, I sin daily. I mess up daily in my mind, in my heart, in my actions. I sin regularly. I'm an imperfect, sinful man. But I'm confident that one day when I stand before God, I will have no worries because I'm in Christ. As a Christian, I don't think I've gotten an A plus on the test of life. That's not what I think. Everyone else has failed. Those who are going to hell have failed the test, but I've gotten an A plus. I'm the teacher's pet. That's not what I believe for a second. It's not that we've passed and everyone else has failed. It's that we're in Christ, that our righteousness is in Him and what He's done for us. Maybe one more interesting thing about eternal life. John 17 verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life is to know God. Eternal life is to have a relationship with Jesus. And I find that such an interesting thing because if you're here and you love Jesus, that's a beautiful thought. The thought of one day seeing God face to face, of uh, unlimited, unending access to His presence. If you're a worshiper here, you must be excited to worship God in a deeper reality, in the fullness of spirit and truth. If you love God, you must be so excited to sit with Him and speak to Him and know more about Him and life and all of His ways. But if you're not interested in God in this life, why would you be interested in God in the life that is to come? If Jesus is not the center of your life and the object of your worship here and now, why would you want Him to be into eternity? Eternal life is to be with God. It's to be with Jesus. And that is the course that I'm calling us to set today. Thirdly, what about those who've never heard? I've spoken to many, many people about Jesus and about His good news. And many people come to me and say, what about those who've never heard though, Grant? What about those who live in some far-off village? What about those without the internet? What about those without any churches nearby, without any Bibles? No one has ever even heard the name of Jesus in that area. What about them? Is it fair that God sends them to hell? And I think it is such an important question to think through and to be able to answer. I'll give you a two-part answer today out of Romans 1 and 2. The first thing is this. We believe in general revelation. It's maybe a bit of a theological term, and it means this, that God has revealed Himself through creation to us. 
So in Romans 1 verse 18 to 20, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's what we're talking about today. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. And Paul, who's writing this letter, is saying there that yes, God is invisible. And many people argue, well, if I can't see him, how can I believe in him? But he's saying the invisible God who we're speaking about and who we've sung to today hasn't hidden himself from us. In fact, he's revealed himself to us through our creation that is all around us. The point that Paul is trying to make there very simply is that the creator has revealed himself to us through creation. And I added this to my notes late, but I think it's important to say, if you woke up tomorrow morning and in your lounge, in your dining room, wherever you've got a bit of space, there was a beautiful new table standing there. You didn't buy it. You didn't order it. You didn't custom ask for it to be made for you. It's just there unexpectedly. You go, whoa, what's going on? Where has this come from? And you'd probably go up to this table and look, look at it a bit. Whoa, where is this from? This is beautiful finishes. Look at the edges. On, this is quality wood. This has been a well-made table. Maybe the designer, the person who's made this table would have left like a little bit of a signature underneath. Just this is my work. I'm an artisan. This is my beautiful work, which I'm proud of leaving in your home. And you'd look at it. You'd probably run your hand over it to feel the texture of the table. Be excited about using this. But you would never for a second doubt that this had been made by someone. This isn't magic. It hasn't just appeared out of nowhere. There's no other reality to this. Someone has designed the table. And you would know something about the designer of the table from what we see, the craftsmanship, the signature he's left, the style, the choices that he's made in making this table. We would know something about the creator through all of that. And God is saying here through Paul in the book of Romans chapter 1 that he has revealed much about himself, his divine attributes through the creation that he has left. And I know that to be true. As I look at mountains, I'm amazed at the power of God. As you see waves crashing and you see some of those extraordinary aspects of nature all around us, we don't doubt that God is an incredible and powerful God. I love looking at animals. I remember when I was a little bit younger and I was processing my faith in Jesus, I remember looking at my dog's thigh as it walked around and watching kind of the muscle move and the hair shake and the sheen on its coat and all of those things and thinking, the detail here is incredible. I legitimately did do that. That is not just an illustration to make a point. I'm not a dog person, but I saw God in my dog. And maybe in some of the emotions you feel and some of the experiences you've had in life, you think, wow, this is transcendent. This is greater than just atoms and neurons joined together. This points us to a creator. I think of my wife as I stare in her eyes at times, as my heart is overwhelmed with love for her, as we just enjoy each other. As I look in her eyes, I don't doubt for a second that she was made by a creator. Paul's argument here is that God has revealed himself to all people everywhere through the things that we know and experience, through creation and the many different aspects that we experience every day. And secondly, in Romans 2 verse 1 and 14 to 16, Paul writes and says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have 
the law. They do not have God's word, the Bible. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The first way God reveals himself to the world is through creation, and the second way that God reveals himself to the world is through morality, through truth, through right and wrong, through absolute truth written already in our hearts. And we know that certain things are right, and we know that certain things are wrong. We would be offended and upset if people did certain things to us that we know go against that code written in our hearts. And I know many people, maybe some of you sitting here today, say, I don't believe that there is a God out there, but that means anything goes. Survival of the fittest, I can do whatever I want because there's no reason for morality, but no one lives that way and no one truly believes that. We act in line with the reality that certain things are right and wrong. But we know that not everything is right, and God has revealed himself to us in right and wrong, in absolute truth by what is written in our hearts. And he is teaching us also that each person will be judged by what they do with the light or the revelation or the truth that they have in their lives. Those who have never heard of the Bible those who've never heard of Jesus, who've never been to church, those who are far out there in some obscure place who might come to mind in this moment, they won't be judged by the same standard as you and I. That's what Paul is writing in this text. They will be judged, but they will be judged based on general revelation. They'll be judged based on the realities of the experience and the reality of God that they've had in their lives. And that's what God will hold them accountable for. Creation and morality. It's not completely good news. Francis Schaeffer, an amazing Christian thinker, gives this example to illustrate a little bit of what Paul is saying there. He says, if every baby who was born instantly had a tape recorder around their necks that would pick up every single moral comment that a person made, every time that child spoke, learned to talk, and said, don't do that, that's right, that's wrong, you should be doing this, stop that, every one of those moral commands would be recorded on that tape recorder. And throughout their life, as they made those comments, as they spoke to people about what other people had done, those comments would all be recorded. And one day, even though that standard of what is right and wrong would be far below God's perfect and holy standard, as they stood in God's presence, that tape recorder could be played back. You said this. You said this. You said this. And every single person would stand in absolute silence, shocked at the reality that we have judged so many people on so many things that we have failed to live up to. All of us fail by our own standards, let alone God's mighty and holy standard. And I want to say these realities, guys, should fill us with, I guess, a sobering reality that our faith is serious, that the gospel message of Jesus is important. It should put something in our hearts. We need to pray for people. We need to share the message of Jesus with people. We need to contribute to church plants and global missions and the things that God is doing around the world. We need to contribute towards Bible translations so that God's word would increase, so that God's word would extend, so that people in far-off places would hear about Jesus. In Romans 1, verse 28 and 29, Paul explains that God, in his wrath against those who reject him, gives them up to the desires of their hearts. And this is an amazing thing. In God's wrath and in God's fairness towards us as mankind, when we choose to go against God's ways, the fairest thing that God can do 
is let us to do what we want. Let us do the things that our sinful hearts desire. God eventually says, okay, have your way. So what is hell then? It is God giving us up to what we have freely chosen. It is God giving us up to the desires of our hearts. It is God giving us over to the path that we choose to pick. And lastly, how can a loving, forgiving God send people to hell? I think as we look at all of these things today, we should be filled with a little bit of shock. It is not easy for me to share these things today, but I do want to be true to what the Bible teaches about all of these things. I think we should be shocked, and I think we should be sobered up a bit by the reality of these things which are politically incorrect, which are radical, and which do have eternal implications. These should make us serious about our faith and radically committed to sharing about Jesus with others. Because Jesus teaches us that hell is real, that hell is a terrible place, that God wants no one to go there, and that our earthly decisions have eternal consequences. I think in all of these things we realize we need a Savior to save us from ourselves and to save us from some of the things that we've done. Hell is horrific. And in a sense this morning, I think these truths should act as smelling salts, which wake us up to the reality of our own sin, but also to the beauty of what Jesus has done on the cross to deal with our sin so that we don't have to worry about this for the rest of time. And this is a terrible doctrine. And if we don't understand this doctrine and we don't understand this truth fully, you know what will happen is we will actually minimize the reality of the love of God towards us and the reality of all that Jesus did on the cross. And if you know anything about the cross, then you know that on the cross, Jesus was beaten and bruised. He was messed up. We know the stories about him being whipped with the cat of nine tails, his back ripped to shreds. We know the stories of the crown of thorns going into his head. We imagine him covered in blood. He was naked, stripped naked to be ashamed in front of those as he hung and died, uh, uh, unable to breathe on the cross. It's a horrible picture. But the physical suffering that Jesus went through is nowhere near the suffering that Jesus went through in his soul as he died for our sins. And we know that because of the words he spoke on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there on the cross, as Jesus died, he felt for the first time in his life, God turn his back on him, darkness. All of these things we've spoken about hell today, separation from God and his presence, darkness, loneliness, suffering, pain, all of those realities that we've spoken about, Jesus experienced on the cross. He experienced hell itself. For you and for I. Jesus went through that so that we would not have to. He went through the separation from God, which all of us would hate, so that you and I do not have to go through that same experience. That is how much Jesus loves you. And hell is a terrible picture of God's holiness and wrath and justice and righteousness. But the cross is an incredible and beautiful picture of God's love and forgiveness and kindness and grace towards us. And that is why all of us can say with confidence that God is both holy and just, and He is kind and loving and forgiving. God has given us the choice. He honors our freedom and honors our choice in all of these things. He does not require that we receive this gift of forgiveness that He offers to every single one of us. If we refuse a relationship with Him, what He does is He grants us our desire. God would not force you to be reconciled to himself. I end with this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says, Hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice.
but for those of us who respond to God's invitation to his forgiveness, eternal life is ours forever. Can I pray for us? If you'd close your eyes, maybe we can all stand together. I know this is a serious message today. It's a sobering message today, and I hope it would be helpful to you. But Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for all of your truth and all of your ways, and we want to be a church that lives in the full breadth of your ways, Lord God. I pray today, Lord, that for all of us in need of your grace and your love and your kindness, I ask you now to pour it out on us, Lord. I pray for those who feel dry and need your nearness, your peace. Would you come and pour it out on every person, every couple, every family here? We desperately pray for that, Lord Jesus. And I pray for our community. We don't want to be apathetic about your truth. And I pray this message today would be smelling salts to all of us. Smelling salts about the reality of hell and smelling salts about the beauty and I guess, gift of your love and kindness to us on the cross. And I just want to ask if there's anyone here today, I don't want to manipulate you in any way at all, but if today you realize, you know what, I am not in Christ. I am not in Him. I'm in sin. I want to respond to God, and I want to be forgiven, and I want to start a journey. I want to cross the line of faith, and I want to live for Jesus all the days of my life. I'd ask you just to raise your hands to God as a sign of yieldedness to Him, and just so that I can see your response I'd love to pray for you and give you some of the words to speak to God, to ask Him to wash you clean and to forgive you. If that's you here today, will you pray after me? Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness. Even though we're deeply humbled by your justice and your wrath, I ask you to forgive me, to wash me clean of my sins, to save me, to be the Lord of my life, to be my king. I want to be in Christ, and I want to follow you all of the days of my life. I want to U-turn. I want to change the trajectory and course of my future, and I want eternal life in you. And you give that to me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. I know this is maybe not the most feel-good message, but it is God's truth, and I hope it builds us up, and as a community, it's another brick to the wall of our faith and our understanding of God's ways. If you've got any questions, you're welcome to come and ask. Otherwise, why don't you grab some tea and coffee downstairs? I really hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And we're looking forward to a wonderful Christmas season and December time together as a church. God bless you all.